And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back. I'm happy you could join us today. Arizona's cannabis industry was blindsided last week by an appellate court ruling that essentially gutted the Arizona Medical Marijuana Act. Two out of three justices formed a majority vote denying an appeal to overturn the conviction of Rodney Christopher Jones, a state-qualified medical marijuana patient who was convicted of felony possession of a derivative of cannabis and paraphernalia, which he purchased at a licensed medical marijuana dispensary. Initially arrested and charged back in 2013, which happened to be three years after Arizona passed its marijuana law, he was convicted and served more than a year of his three-and-a-half-year sentence while his appeal was pending. Upon conclusion of the judge's final ruling, he was escorted back to prison where he will serve out the remainder of his sentence. This really is a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. His arrest happened in Yavapai County, which is the infamous jurisdiction of the county prosecutors Sheila Polk and Bill Montgomery, who are notorious for their overzealous campaigns against marijuana reform and prosecution of patients to further their agenda. This time they succeeded, and they found a technicality in the language of the voter initiative that conflicted with the Arizona Criminal Code. Under the Arizona Medical Marijuana Act, Marijuana is defined as the dried flower of the marijuana plant and any preparation thereof. Under criminal code, cannabis is defined as the extracts, resins, and derivatives like hashish that fall into a class of dangerous drugs. The appellate court opinion concluded that legal medical marijuana as defined in the Arizona Medical Marijuana Act does not include cannabis. That means cannabis derivatives. Anything other than dried flour is illegal under Arizona law now, including oils, vape pens, topicals, wax, hashish, concentrates, candy, and edibles that are commonly used as medicine. Rodney Jones has paid the price. Having already spent a year behind bars It's a harsh and unjust punishment for possessing the medicine that he thought he was legally entitled to buy using his legally obtained medical marijuana license. Sadly, more than 160,000 medical marijuana patients in Arizona are now on notice, and thousands of people working in the cannabis industry are at risk of either losing their jobs or their freedom. That's the topic of today's show, and honestly, I can't think of anyone more qualified to discuss this than the attorney who's helping to take Rodney's case to the Supreme Court. Thomas Dean has represented hundreds of defendants arrested on marijuana charges and recently won the precedent-setting case in the Supreme Court that made it legal for students who are medical marijuana patients to possess their medicine on campuses in the state of Arizona. Welcome, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. 
I'm really glad that you're here because this is such an important topic. It is. I'll tell you this. The last time we've seen anything of this gravity in the medical marijuana world was back in 2011 when Governor Jan Brewer filed her lawsuit attempting to prevent dispensaries from ever being able to open. And in that case, I represented the Arizona Association of Dispensary Professionals and uh, co-authored a motion to dismiss uh, with the ACLU, who was representing a different party. I believe there were five defendants in that case. And ultimately, we were able to get that case dismissed. It delayed the implementation of dispensaries for about a year, caused all kinds of problems for patients. They were paying $150 a, a, a pop for cards, and that was supposed to entitle them to have a safe place to obtain their medication. Well, we beat that, but really, I mean, we've had a lot of very important cases since then, but I can't think of any that are as significant as this decision because of its broad impact, primarily, of course, on consumers, patients, um, who depend on some form of concentrate as their preferred or really only viable method of delivery. And of course, secondarily, um, you have the dispensary industry itself that depends on 40 plus percent of its sales having to do with uh, what the Court of Appeals in this decision has defined as an illegal narcotic drug. See, it's impossible to reconcile in my mind how on one hand, everybody knows the medical benefits of cannabis. And I received a, a comment on our Facebook when I posted this article, aren't they splitting hairs? And really, it seems like there must be an ulterior motive because it makes absolutely zero sense. And for a judge who I'm assuming... Judges, because we've got three judges, one disagreed, right? The dissent. So we've right. got... There's one yeah. dissent, two that affirmatively voted for this. Correct? Right. But they must be educated people. They must have common sense. They really are. You're right. They're very intelligent. They're very well-versed in the law. I'll tell you this. I don't have anything really bad to say about any of the justices at the Court of Appeals. I think, generally speaking, they do a good job. I certainly don't always agree with them. It's not anything to do with, I don't believe, their understanding of the legal principles involved. I do have concerns that they didn't quite understand the science surrounding marijuana concentrates and how they're produced, how they're derived from the marijuana plant, and how they're really the same thing as the marijuana plant. They're just, you know, just like you pluck a leaf off a marijuana plant, you extract the resin, that's still part of a plant. I feel that there was perhaps, and I'm not blaming the attorney for Mr. Jones for this, because I don't think anyone really thought that this could ever happen, but developing the facts at the trial court level during the motion to dismiss is really important. And we found that out in Navajo County another case that had declared that concentrates were not covered under the Medical Marijuana Act last year, uh, Attorney John Salina had reached out to me after that decision. And along with the other members of the Arizona Cannabis Bar Association in that case, I looked at, I thought, you know, I don't think the judge really understands here. So we did a motion to reconsider, put on a hearing, brought in an expert witness who did extractions to explain the process. And the judge then said, oh, I see. I didn't understand. He reversed his own decision. Unfortunately, by the time the broader legal community who are supportive of uh, marijuana policy reform 
found out about the Yavapai County case, the Jones case, the case that became this Court of Appeals decision, it was too late for us to fix it or weigh in at that point. And I think it kind of got away from us. Uh, just It was off the radar. And perhaps there was a lack of adequate development of the science and facts at the, the trial court. Um, and that's all the Court of Appeals can look at. They can't look at new, any new evidence now. They, did, they weren't able to examine like a new scientific report or hear new testimony, nor will the Supreme Court have the benefit of that uh, if this does end up being accepted for review. So I think, I know it's a long-winded answer, but they are very competent, intelligent people on the Court of Appeals. I'm just not sure if they got the, uh, the critical facts here to make a right decision. Yeah, clearly, because by virtue of his statement, what was his exact quote, that cannabis as defined under Arizona's criminal code is not marijuana, period. I found that completely astonishing from someone who is educated enough to at least have looked to see the definition of marijuana. It's one and the same with cannabis. It just made absolutely zero sense. Well, that is a true statement under the criminal code. I don't know, maybe you could say four broad categories of substances. We have marijuana that stands alone. We have prescription-only drugs. Uh, we have narcotic drugs, and we have dangerous drugs. You know, a dangerous drug, for example, would be methamphetamine. That's in the long list of substances under the category dangerous drugs. Narcotic drugs, we have uh, heroin. Uh, and in that long list, we also have a substance that's referred to as cannabis. Cannabis is essentially defined as the extract or the resin from the marijuana plant. So it's a true statement that technically under the old criminal code, marijuana provisions, cannabis, quote unquote, the the extract, the concentrate, uh, the resin, whatever you want to call it, hashish, is treated as a narcotic drug. So that statement was correct. It's just that what I think the dissent was trying to say, and what do I what I agree with is that the Medical Marijuana Act adopted a completely different definition of marijuana and didn't make that distinction. And so the distinction in this case is really unwarranted. And that's the crux of the issue here. So appellate court judges in Arizona are appointed by the people in elected offices. Is that correct? Uh, Well, the appointment, I guess, is by the governor, like to uh, fill a vacancy or anything like that. Let me just say about that, that the I think what you're expressing is that we value an independent judiciary. We don't want the judiciary to be subject to the political whim of the day. Um, we want the court to be basing its decisions always on what the law says. And, you know, we can disagree with the law, but that's a matter for the legislature or for the people in the form of a ballot initiative. We don't want the courts to try and play politics, regardless of what side they take. And um, that kind of judicial activism is what is meant to be avoided by not subjecting judges to constant reelection as if they were representatives in the in the house and i believe that um, we've achieved that in arizona to a large extent i think we do have an independent judiciary that isn't generally influenced by political ideas they all of course are going to have their own political bias that's human nature we all have that then i suppose that's going to always be something that 
can influence their decisions, whether they are aware of it or not. But I can point to an example of last month's decision that uh, I won in a case called State v. Maestas, which involved this statute that was passed after the Medical Marijuana Act was enacted by the legislature that criminalized possession by patients of their medical marijuana on public university campuses. And that was passed by more than 90% of the both houses of the legislature and was being zealously argued by the attorney general's office, who obviously, of course, represents the executive branch. So we had incredible pressure on the Court of Appeals, this same Court of Appeals, actually, because before we got the Supreme Court decision, we prevailed at this Court of Appeals. In the face of that kind of, in many ways, unparalleled political pressure, they still came out in favor of the rights of patients respecting the Medical Marijuana Act. So I don't feel justified to interpret their decision as being their own uh, manipulation of the Medical Marijuana Act. I think this is more of a failure of understanding the science of how these concentrates are produced. I vehemently disagree with their decision. I can't say that it's impossible that politics influenced here. I just, and I know that it's easy to want to jump to that conclusion. I'm just not ready to to go there yet. I think um, there's other reasons for why we arrived at what I think is a clearly erroneous decision. It just makes me wonder. And then, you know, the other thing that bothers me a lot is there's this sort of underpinning of racism, too. And we already know the ACLU facts about marijuana convictions and arrests being four times or more greater, poor communities especially. Absolutely. And then their Caucasian counterparts, it really begs the question, is the decision about Jones racially biased at all? And I'm not accusing the court of that. I'm just, it just raises the question. No question that in our so-called criminal justice system, more aptly referred to, in my opinion, as the prison industrial complex, no question that there is a disproportionate number of persons of a color who are subject to investigation, arrest, prosecution, incarceration. There's no question about that. Uh, part of that is, a, I think, attributable to the over-policing of minority communities for whatever reason. And there's no doubt there's disproportionate sentencing. For years, we had the cocaine crack sentencing disparity. And hard to say one substance is any more dangerous than the other, but certainly the uh, crack form of cocaine was far more popular in the inner cities, uh, minority groups. And and so I think that we all recognize that it was unfair to, to have, and that, that's definitely true. Um, there's no way that to, to argue around that. I mean, we have seen that here in Arizona in our own uh, Department of Public Safety Uh, our highway patrol blatantly discriminating in their highway stops and searches and arrests of people of color. There's no question, I would agree with you, that phenomenon exists and it is a real big problem. On the other hand, specifically speaking to this Court of Appeals, because it's so recent in time, their decision in the Maestas case, the ASU campus ban case, Andre Maestas was uh, you know, of, of Mexican heritage. Um, he's a young uh, minority. And the, the Court of Appeals sided with him over almost the unanimous state legislature 
and the attorney general's office. So, you know, I want I mean, I want to acknowledge where there's there's a problem. There definitely is systemically in our criminal justice system, a problem with uh, racial disparity, disproportionate um, impact. No question about it. But at the same time, I want to be fair. And I want to say when there's such clear evidence to the contrary of this court of appeals, I don't think they're racially motivated. Uh, I mean, that's obviously my opinion, but I just don't see that pervasively as much as I disagree. I mean, I mean, this is important because we're bringing this to the Supreme Court too. And I don't think it's helpful to go to the Supreme Court playing a race card unless there's real serious evidence to support that that was a, a factor. You know, uh, I don't think yeah. that strengthens our, our argument. It almost even detracts from it. And we've got so much good stuff to argue in this case. Yeah, well, you know what? By process of elimination, if that's not it, and if it's not a political bias, perhaps it is just the genuine conflict between criminal code to the AMMA. Yeah. So these questions come up. It's definitely you know, important to raise those questions. It definitely is. I mean, absolutely. It's always, especially anything in the context of the uh, criminal justice system. We're remiss if we don't at least consider the possibility of, of racism influencing policies and decisions. So, I mean, uh, definitely it's something that's always worth um you know, taking a look at. Absolutely, it is. So what is next for Mr. Jones? I, I feel so bad for him going back because he's only served one year out of his three and a half year sentence. I mean, clearly there's a lot of people who are going to suffer as a result of this decision, but no one more immediately than Mr. Jones, who is just, I mean, to go to prison for something that... Eh, in my opinion, and I've been looking at this issue for years, I've been writing about it, I've been lecturing about it. It, it. To me, it's the Court of Appeals so clearly was incorrect in this decision that he has to now go through this. It's just such a travesty. And it's, it's just heartbreaking that this guy is going to have to be punished for doing engaging in conduct that in my opinion, in the opinion of most people, I think that seriously, legal minds that are looking at this issue, the decision is wrong that the Court of Appeals made. And But it's going to take a year for us to get a contrary decision out of the Supreme Court. And for that year, you know, um, he's, he's stuck with the sentence. So, I mean, yeah, my heart really goes out to him. Um, there's a lot of other people, I'm telling you right now, who are going to get busted. Uh, patience and caregivers busted for possessing what are now categorized as unlawful narcotic drugs under the Medical Marijuana Act in the next year. And there is a lot of people who seem to kind of be operating under the idea that, well, this decision doesn't really count until the Supreme Court affirms it. But in point of fact, it's exactly the opposite. This decision is now the law of Arizona until and unless the Supreme Court disagrees with it. And although I imagine that different law enforcement agencies, different prosecuting jurisdictions will take a different approach on how um, aggressive they are about pursuing these cases, I have no doubt that we're gonna see many people who are busted who wouldn't have been busted last week for possessing these substances. And you know, for example, the person who gets pulled over, for a traffic stop and the officer notices 
um, a vape pen on the passenger seat that turns out to be, you know, a, a medical marijuana uh, cartridge, and um, is going to then be charged with possession of a narcotic drug. I'm even I'm even more concerned about people who might be found to be in possession of something as as harmless as a grinder. This is a device that's used to put flour into, and then it, it's ground up so that it can be either used to to put into uh, a marijuana cigarette. The bottom part of these grinders, there's a screen and what falls through is what is often referred to as keef, but it's essentially the, the resin, the trichomes that have come off of the flour in the grinding process, which is in effect what the, it's a, it's a process of separating that this opinion would has declared to be illegal. And so not only would whatever's in that bottom part of the grinder be an narcotic drug, but the process of grinding it to produce it would technically be considered manufacturing a narcotic drug, which is a much more serious offense. So these little things like, I, I feel that it's going to be law enforcement accidentally stumbling into these situations. I don't think they're going to have a task force to go out and try to root out patients who might be using vape pens or, you know, dabbing or anything like that. But when they find it, I believe that they're going to you know, arrest and file complaints against those people. Um, those are the persons I'm most concerned about. Of course, also, you've got a lot of people working at dispensaries who now, if they continue to sell, which many are, and I've spoken with dispensary owners, some of them have actually started taking these products off their shelves. Most, it appears, are leaving these products on their shelf, but they're canceling future orders of these products. And uh, they figure at least there's a, a window anyhow where they're not going to be harassed. And so it's a chance to let's just get rid of what we got. Uh, others, I think, are being even more bold. And in my opinion, if they continue to sell these products, my hat is off to them. It's courageous. It's an act of civil disobedience if they continue to sell these products. They're subjecting themselves to some rather potentially severe consequences, including uh, not only loss of a license, but civil forfeiture of property and even criminal prosecution. It also concerns me that the product that they sell to these patients, as soon as these patients walk out the door with it, they're now at risk of being pulled over and found to be in possession of a narcotic drug. So it's really scary. And I'm seeing a lot of denial and sort of this idea, we're not worried about it because the Supreme Court has to weigh in first, but that's not the case. This is the law right now. Yeah, it's very troubling. But, you know, what really bothers me the most is that under the AMMA, marijuana is broadly defined as the dried flowers of the marijuana plant and any mixture or preparation thereof, right? So if you go by the letter of the law, didn't the judge's decision completely contradict that? I, I believe it did. I think the dissent did a pretty good job of, of highlighting some of the mistakes that the majority made in that decision. But in my opinion, it is really as simple as you say it is, which is, um, although this decision is more broad than that, it says anything separated from the plant. So, you know, it doesn't have to be a chemical extraction process. It doesn't have to be turned into oil before it becomes this illegal narcotic drug. But uh, I think that any of these forms of the marijuana plant are what I would call a preparation of marijuana. And as you correctly pointed out, the definition of usable marijuana is the dried flower and any mixture of preparation thereof. For example, 
Aspirin is a preparation of willow bark. Morphine is a preparation of the poppy plant. Novocaine is a preparation of the coca plant. The same way concentrates are a preparation of the marijuana plant. I believe it really is as simple as that. And, and when you have another provision in, in that section also defining allowable amount to say that when calculating the allowable amount of a, in a food or drink product, you have to first separate out the food or drink, uh, the non-marijuana ingredients. This is definitely a big failure of the Marijuana Policy Project, the organization that wrote this, by not making this more clear. But certainly by implication, they're, they're saying that these extracts and concentrates are, are supposed to be covered under the Medical Marijuana Act because who in their right mind takes a flower and crumbles it up into a, into a drink? And no one does that. It, it just doesn't make any sense. It's unreasonable to think that that's possibly what they could have been referring to. So at least by implication, they were accepting these, these extracts. Mm, the okay, trend in medicine has always been scientifically to reduce a something to its most concentrated element for dosing purposes, because the more concentrated the active ingredient is, the less side effects that you have when that substance is used as medicine. So for example, you wouldn't go into a uh, emergency room after being in a serious car accident or with a kidney stone or some other like acute pain issue and have the doctor give you an opium pipe and tell you to smoke it till you felt better. No, he's gonna put you on an IV and he's gonna administer an exact highly concentrated dose of morphine which is a preparation of the poppy plant. That's the standard. That's how we medicate. This decision flies in the face of everything about what we consider Western allopathic medicine. And I think that becomes the crux of the problem. If you want to talk about bias, the bias I see is the war on drugs bias that says, this isn't a legitimate medicine. People are doing this just to get high. That's fine, but they have to stick to flour. It's a complete lack of recognition of the medical value of marijuana and the importance of, of having, for many people, a highly concentrated form of that medicine. For example, do you want someone with uh, emphysema to have to smoke marijuana? Yeah, I think anyone would agree it would be better for them, better for their health to, to do it in some other way that doesn't involve introducing a smoke into their lungs or yeah. like Xander Welton who's no longer with us but thanks to marijuana tinctures which would be illegal now he was able to have a normal life for the time that you know his um, terminal illness allowed him to, to, to continue to live his parents didn't want him to have to smoke marijuana for obvious reasons I mean there are many people like this who depend on this form of medicine as the only effective or viable means of uh, medicating the Xander Welton case I mean and that's if we go back in history to 2014 this issue was first looked at well first it was a criminal case I was involved in I filed a motion to dismiss uh, in a criminal case you know, a guy caught with a medicated candy uh, charged with possession of a narcotic drug by Bill Montgomery, Maricopa County Attorney's Office at the Superior Court here downtown. The court agreed with, with me that, that concentrates infused products were 
legal under the Medical Marijuana Act and dismissed that case. Three weeks later, the case Welton versus the Department of Health Services. This was the child, Zandy Welton, who had the chronic spasticity disorder. I mean, literally, he was all day in a spasm, had no quality of life. I mean, none whatsoever. Marijuana tinctures were able to reduce those seizures to like, I don't know, it was like a dozen or so a day, which was miraculous. And this kid was able to have a relatively normal life. I mean, again, his disease was terminal. So unfortunately, he did end up passing away two, three years later. But um, he was able to have a normal quality of life. Bill Montgomery, the county attorney here, wanted his parents to force him to smoke it, to smoke, introduce smoke into his lungs, which they didn't want to do. And these little tinctures that just dripped under his tongue were all it was needed. And fortunately, the court agreed that that was legal. That's what settled everything. And then at that point, it was only then that dispensaries started carrying these products on their shelves. A lot of people might not remember that up until that point in 2014, you couldn't buy concentrates. You couldn't buy any form of concentrate from a dispensary because Maricopa County Attorney's Office was saying it was illegal. It was only after that decision that they started carrying that on their shelves and the department started issuing kitchen licenses to dispensaries who wanted to produce these substances. Although it is important for me, I think, to point out that if you do a quick Google search, Arizona Medical Marijuana, Department of Health Services, blog, concentrates, you'll find at the top that the director had issued almost prophetically follows the reasoning in this court of appeals case by saying, pointing out the distinction in the criminal code between marijuana and concentrates, and then saying that the Medical Marijuana Act is silent as to whether or not these concentrates are legal or not, kind of setting up the possibility that despite issuing these kitchen licenses, much of what maybe dispensaries intended to do with their kitchen license may well be illegal under the Medical Marijuana Act. And this isn't referenced in the Court of Appeals decision, but if you read those blogs, the Court of Appeals closely follows the way that the director talked about this issue. You know, a lot of dispensaries are relying on their kitchen license, for example, to justify the ongoing sales of these products. Certainly, if they're busted, that's the first defense that they want to go to. But there's some potential issues with that defense, unfortunately. Well, I would think that the justices in the Jones case, having the state-issued medical marijuana card, essentially patients are not told that by having this, that it's illegal for them to buy something that is purchased at a legal licensed dispensary. So uh, I just wonder why they didn't just say, okay, well, we'll rule this way, but Mr. Jones, go home. You've served enough time. We understand that you were operating what you felt was in a legal way because you were issued a state card to possess up to 2.5 ounces of usable marijuana. marijuana. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. the problem. They've defined, they've said that usable marijuana does not include these products. That's the problem. And, it, and, and the short answer is ignorance of the law is no excuse. Um, the longer answer is the court may well have wanted to do that, but they don't have the authority to. Only the prosecutor can make decisions about uh, mitigation and um, leniency and things like that. The court, unfortunately, in this day and age, is without authority to impose its own 
decision on that. The legislature prescribes the penalties for any particular crime because of this person's criminal record. He was facing this mandatory prison sentence and the prosecutor could have said, we're not pursuing that, but we're talking about Yavapai County. We're talking about Sheila Polk, no doubt the most outspoken critic of medical marijuana in the state, right? Yeah, they've gone way out of their way to try to reverse the entire state program as well. I mean, I can't imagine why they've gone so far out of their way. Way out. Ugh. And, and for what? That definitely, I feel, is politically motivated. And I don't expect you to <laughs> agree with me, but I am convinced that both Sheila Polk and Bill Montgomery are worried more about their campaign donations. I would definitely agree that, I mean, when you have them taking so much money from industries that are opposed to medical marijuana, whether it's the alcohol industry or the pharmaceutical industry, you might remember that Sheila Polk's organization, their anti-marijuana group, accepted a huge donation from a pharmaceutical company that was developing an alternative to medical marijuana that it clearly was uh, felt that medical marijuana jeopardized their bottom line, and they were more than happy to accept that money, as well as money from companies producing opioids, far more dangerous substance than, you know, not even in the same ballpark. Ironically, marijuana occupies a higher schedule, schedule one substance, versus, um, you know, like OxyContin, which is a schedule two substance. Uh, but yeah, the hypocrisy is there. No question. It has a lot to do with money, but I'm going to also say, you know, that I believe that they actually do zealously believe that marijuana is bad for society. I have a hard time thinking that they think that that's scientifically true, that marijuana is bad for people's health or something, even though they constantly are harping on these ridiculous studies that would indicate otherwise when the vast avalanche of scientific peer-reviewed literature is supportive of medical marijuana and marijuana policy reform. But I do think that maybe in their minds, they feel that this is a cultural problem, that they feel that the socially conservative constituency that they have is threatened by what they might perceive as a subculture of people who um, are associated with cannabis use. Uh, Now, uh, that's just, I think, endemic on anyone who's against marijuana policy reform. I think that's part of the reefer madness. I mean, that's the way it's been from the beginning. It was all about make marijuana illegal because Mexicans and Blacks are going to be killing people and raping women and all this kind of reefer madness, blatant racism that was used to justify marijuana prohibition to begin with. To, so to, to speak to your point about racism, it no doubt, I think, still pervades the uh, marijuana policy discussion in this country in, in many ways. Uh, and, and part of that is the way that it disproportionately affects um, enforcement against persons of minor, minority color. All I was saying earlier was I don't, I'm not prepared to say that the Court of Appeals itself was motivated by any racist considerations. Yeah. Yeah, the underneath of it is that this whole this whole crappy thing is is systemically racist. Right. Yeah, I I agree with that statement absolutely. But it, it here's another question for you: the conflict between federal 
regulation and state regulation and then, you know, in the justice system, it it seems to me that there would be a constitutional argument to be made for this judge to reconsider. And what comes to mind is about three weeks ago, the Justice Department issued authority in their federal registry for six pharmaceutical companies, one of which is Insys, which we know has given money to our friends up in Yavapai County on numerous occasions, not to mention the governor. And these six companies were granted license to import Schedule One and Two narcotics for extraction purposes. They're going to be governed by the FDA, but the Justice Department and the DEA are sanctioning the use of something other than the flower of the marijuana plant or the leaves of the coca plant. They are literally extracting opium poppy resins and coca leaf resins and marijuana resins. And not only that, but just three or four days ago, a P-Dialex, which is the new epilepsy medicine, that is actually an extract of marijuana. It's a marijuana derivative, and they've altered the tag. It's exactly what this court said is illegal in this case. Exactly. So doesn't that conflict with federal regulation? And isn't that an affirmative argument for the judge for reconsidering his decision in this case? Well, no, unfortunately, the reason for that is that medical marijuana as it exists in Arizona and every other state that has a medical marijuana program is not considered to be a pharmaceutical drug, FDA, DEA approved pharmaceutical drug. Much like, you know, if I was to grow poppy plants and extract the resin and medicate with that, you know, use that, um, despite the fact that, you know, morphine, oxycodone, uh, codeine, all these other uh, poppy plant derivatives are legal as pharmaceutical drugs when prescribed, when produced by a pharmaceutical, a registered pharmaceutical company and prescribed by a physician. That doesn't mean that it's legal for me to make it for myself. That's really where that distinction comes in. Um, so in, in other words, unless you are a pharmacy that's been given specific approval by the FDA and DEA to produce a product, then any anyone who attempts to do that is guilty of manufacturing a narcotic drug. So... I mean, the hypocrisy is just astonishing. It is. It's crazy. And when you think of it in those terms, it makes you, it really drives you just bonkers because it's like, how can you say that this isn't, I think what you're saying here, if I may, I think what you're saying is, how can this court say that these concentrates are not medicine when the federal FDA itself has just declared in this instance, the opposite? I mean, how can you sit there and go, oh, well, the, it couldn't be possible that the, the drafters of the Medical Marijuana Act and the voters intended that these concentrates be considered medical marijuana and that patients could, could have access to them as medicine, how, you know, when that's exactly what the federal government is saying right now about these exact same kinds of substances. Um, and the technical distinction between the two, which is one's FDA approved and another's not, who cares? The point is, is that in effect, the court is saying that these substances are not medicine 
when obviously they are and the federal government even admits that. Yeah, it, I, uh, it, it just leaves me speechless. Yeah, um, and the court, you know, what they've done is they've said, look, the medical marijuana, first of all, we, they started off incorrectly, in my opinion, referring to the criminal code and the, the distinction that the Arizona criminal code makes between marijuana and concentrates. It then says, because the Medical Marijuana Act didn't specifically say that concentrates were legal under the Medical Marijuana Act, um, that hashish, they like to use the word hashish, or resin, or uh, extracts, uh, any of those, they didn't specifically say that, use those magic words, that therefore they did not affect the part of the criminal code that makes those substances illegal. And um, I think, you know, they just got it wrong, but that was really the anchor of their decision. And they, they summed it up by saying, if the drafters of the Medical Marijuana Act had intended to um, medicalize, they use the word medicalize, that's my word, the use of concentrates, then they should have said so. In my opinion, they did. I, I mean, they might not have said it as clearly as I would like them to have said. And that, again, is the fault of the Marijuana Policy Project. I can tell you now that Safer Arizona, who is still collecting signatures for a 2018 legalization initiative that would completely solve this problem if it passed. The question is, I, you know, whether there'll be enough signatures to get it on the ballot. Their deadline's coming up here in a few days. In that, I was the legal counsel in that drafting committee. And we were very, very careful to include a very broad definition of marijuana to specifically include concentrates, because again, we saw this problem potentially coming. If that passed, if that got on the ballot and passed, this this would no longer be an issue at all. Yeah. And to their defense, one could say this was one of the first out of the gate in 2010, aside from California, obviously set a precedent a long time ago. Same year we passed you know, our first one, you know. No, I did not. I wasn't here in Arizona at that time. Medical um, Marijuana Act was passed in 1996, officially before California's. We were the first state to pass a medical marijuana ballot initiative. But our government said, oh, the people must have been confused. There's no way that they could have understood what they were doing. And they refused to implement it, which is what directly precipitated the 1998 passage by ballot initiative of the Arizona Voter Protection Act, which amended our constitution to say that the government was not allowed to uh, re veto, refuse to implement or modify a voter in initiative, uh, except under very specific circumstances that it's passed by a supermajority and that it furthers the purpose of the initiative it modifies. This is how I won the campus ban case last month on that. So we've been fighting with the government over, over this issue for, for many years. We're the first state, the very first state to pass a medical marijuana initiative. No, that's interesting. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. And you know what? That seems like that could also be another affirmative declaration for you uh, to go by the, the Voter Protection Act because by implication, when there's a ballot initiative regulating medical marijuana and the people vote for it, they're not voting for smoking flour. They're voting for medical marijuana. And even if the way it was written was extremely vague, they weren't splitting hairs over the difference between the criminal code's definition. They were voting for medical marijuana. Absolutely. And uh, 
I really believe that the Court of Appeals just missed this. I feel like if it had been presented to them in a different way, they would reach a different conclusion. I'm confident that if the Supreme Court agrees to review this decision, that they will reverse the Court of Appeals decision. And there's a lot of reasons for that, you know, that we could go into. And we've talked a little bit about the definition of usable marijuana and the idea of what a preparation is. If you look at the medical definition of preparation, you'll see that concentrates fit very neatly into that definition. I think that, you know, if you look at the definition of medical use, medical use is defined to include a a broad range of conduct. Some of that conduct is otherwise restricted. Like, for example, it says you can possess and use marijuana, but we know that you can only possess so much, your allowable amount, two and a half ounces for each patient. It says that you can cultivate, but we know that elsewhere in the medical marijuana, it says that you first must have authorization to do so, that you live more than 25 miles from an existing dispensary. So one of those types of conduct, though, is referred to as manufacturing. Manufacturing is nowhere else otherwise restricted in the Medical Marijuana Act. What does manufacturing mean? Can you manufacture marijuana? Let's look at the criminal code, just like the Court of Appeals did. Can you manufacture marijuana? And the answer is no. You look at the statute and what's prohibited. Sales are prohibited. Production or cultivation is prohibited. Um, And, you know, things like importing, um, transporting for sale. And uh, nowhere do we see, however, that it's illegal to manufacture marijuana. There's no such thing as manufacturing marijuana. But if we look over at the narcotic drug section, in addition to those other categories, you know, sales, transportation, possession, just like marijuana, you have manufacturing, manufacturing a narcotic drug. That word manufacturing within the definition of medical use in the Medical Marijuana Act makes no sense unless it's referring to the manufacturer of extracts, resin. So, you know, a lot of these issues weren't properly raised with the Court of Appeals. I don't know that they really even ever considered these other arguments, but they, you can rest assured that the Supreme Court will be aware of these other arguments. And there's going to be a lot of supporting briefs that are going to go into this. Um, At the Court of Appeals level, there was only the AACJ, the Arizona Attorneys for Criminal Justice, that filed a brief in support of Mr. Jones, um, an amicus curie brief. And that's a great organization. Um, No doubt they'll be filing an amicus curie brief again before the Supreme Court. But we also have already gotten confirmation briefs that are going to be filed by the Arizona Cannabis Bar Association, the Marijuana Industry Trade Association. Um, I'm doing one on behalf of Normal. We've heard the ADA Dispensary Association is doing one. I am working on the ACLU. I have hopes that they will throw their hat into the ring. Students for a Sensible Drug Policy is a possibility. Um, Multiple organizations are going to weigh in on this and a wide array of different perspectives. And that's what I think is important for the Supreme Court to hear and understand. Uh, So I I really do think that we're going to get this straightened out. It's just that Unfortunately, it's going to take a year to get there. Yeah, unfortunately for Jones. 
and everybody but, else. They're telling you there's people who are going to get busted for this over the next year. And it's important that they know that they have a defense because at court and, and disagree with this court of appeals, um, Phoenix on North, they'll lose. But even though they're going to lose, you've preserved that issue for appeal. So when the Supreme Court gets around to deciding this and hopefully reverses this court of appeals decision, that person will be able then to ask the court to vacate their conviction and uh, dismiss their case. So uh, it's still important to raise this issue in anticipation of the Supreme Court's decision. If you're in Southern Arizona, you still have a chance here of persuading the courts down there and the Court of Appeals that's located in Tucson, Division Two of the Court of Appeals, to reach a different decision, in which case we'll have a conflict of authority. Um, that's not unusual. It happens. It happened in the Medical Marijuana Act in the context of the issue of whether patients have the right to medicate while they're on probation. Division uh, One out of Phoenix ruled that they did not have the right to medicate while on probation. Division two, around the same time, ruled that they did have the right and that the court and the prosecution or the probation department, whatever, could not disturb that right. So the Supreme Court took review because of the conflict and um, decided that division two was right and that patients did have the absolute right to medicate. So what I'm saying is that out of the Tucson Court of Appeals, it's possible we could get a different decision. So it's really important that when people do get busted for this, that they not just figure, oh, well, I guess I'm screwed. No, follow the advice of your attorney, but make sure you have an attorney who understands this issue, understands the defense, so they can raise it effectively so that you've preserved it so that when the Supreme Court does correct this, then you're able to avail yourself of that remedy. And in the meantime, don't get busted. Now, the simple way to say that is, well, don't, don't use concentrates. And while I can't advise someone to break the law as a lawyer, I'm not allowed to do that. I can say, though, to make sure that you assert your constitutional rights, you don't have to answer questions about what this product is that maybe you're found to be in possession of. You don't have to agree to a search of your car where maybe a vape pen might be found. You don't have to agree to any of that stuff. And it's important to be aware of your constitutional rights. It's important for you to effectively not waive those rights and hand over to the cops their ability to prosecute you. You know, I have a, a tool to use called the, it's come to be known as a glove box lawyer. You can download from my website, attorneyforcannabis.com or other websites out there carry it. And that's designed to be printed out, signed. You sign it and you just give it to the cop. You don't even have to remember what to say. You hand it to him in writing. You know, don't leave things out in plain view that might be interpreted by law enforcement as something that's illegal under this decision. And not all edible products are illegal under this decision, by the way. And they've specifically referenced brownies and other types of products. But the way they described them were products that were not infused by any kind of extract. So in other words, if the edible product was infused with an oil or a butter or whatever that was derived from the plant, that's illegal. Um, but if it was, uh, I guess, just a, if you took the flour itself and maybe crumbled it up and put it into 
the uh, batter, that that would be okay under this decision because it's the whole plant. It's not, it's not a derivative. It's not an extract. It's not the resin. And, you know, no, most people don't make their edibles that way. But interestingly, the state laboratories are incapable of proving how the marijuana got into the brownie. It's baked in, it's baked in. You can't reverse engineer that to say, well, this brownie had extract. This brownie did not. So there are defenses still left available to people who, might, who are going to get charged with these types of offenses. And so it's important that you have an attorney versed in these things who's, effectively, who's able to effectively raise those defenses. The Senate just legalized hemp by passage of the Agricultural Improvement Act. So obviously most hemp-derived CBD products are indeed cannabis and they are indeed resins and extracts, the things that this particular court deemed illegal because by definition, hemp is cannabis sativa L. It's another subspecies, but it is indeed cannabis. So how would one go about interpreting the conflict in the law there? Well, and, and, and the CBD uh, issue is very interesting. Um, it still is, uh, has a shade of gray over it uh, as far as how legal it is. But um, putting that issue aside, um, CBD is, whether a CBD product is illegal, um, it, 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 most uh, attorneys who are familiar with this issue would would say the distinction is whether where it's been derived from. If CBD has been derived from the, the a hemp plant, then the argument is that it is lawful because it, it it's a part of a plant that has been exempted from the medical uh, sorry the federal controlled substances act. So, for example, um, hemp that's produced in Canada legally, if the CBD oil was derived from that plant, is arguably lawful uh, because it is part of the plant, and you can't, you don't, uh, you know, you know, extracting something from a legal plant, it's still part of that legal plant. It doesn't suddenly become illegal by deriving a, a particular constituent of that plant. That constituent doesn't become illegal. It's still part of the plant. I mean, this is a logic that was adopted by the Ninth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals a few years ago when um, the issue was the DEA had said that the, a hemp food product contained trace amounts of THC. THC is a Schedule One substance, like CBDs are, and therefore this, the product was illegal. The, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said that, no, this THC is naturally occurring in hemp. And therefore, because hemp itself is exempted from the definition of marijuana in the Controlled Substances Act, therefore, any derivative, anything part of the plant is also excluded under the definition of marijuana and is legal. Now, I wish that that was the reasoning that was adopted by the Court of Appeals in this case, right? They didn't get to consider that opinion, though. Again, a lot of, they didn't have a lot of information and a lot of important uh, information that I think might have influenced them to make a different decision because that's what the Ninth Circuit said. And the idea in the CBD industry is just like food products containing a trace amount of THC are legal 
because they're considered hemp derived. So would hemp derived CBD products be considered legal? That's the argument. If the oil, whether it's THC, CBD, whatever, was derived from a medical marijuana plant, that under this decision is illegal. If it were derived, however, from a, a hemp plant, that's arguably legal. It certainly isn't affected by this case, by this Court of Appeals decision in Jones. Okay, so here's just a follow-up to that. Would that legality be a workaround for patients in the state of Arizona? For instance, if you were to go to the dispensary and purchase CBD oil that's hemp-derived and put your dried flour in the oven to decarboxylate it and then crumble it up and put it into the oil, there is no distinction between CBD like molecularly, if you were to take an isolate of CBD from the hemp plant and you take an isolate of CBD molecules from the marijuana plant and you compare them side by side, there is no scientific way to determine the difference between because cannabidiol is cannabidiol, period. And chemical. Right? So if someone were to show proof that they purchased this legal product that is a hemp-derived CBD in a pure form that has other cannabinoids in it, like CBN, you know, THCA, all of these things that you can extract directly from the hemp plant, right? And do that. And then argue, okay, there are marijuana leaves in here as well, which they can test in a lab and see indeed these are marijuana. By putting it into an oil, is that legal? Like, could someone actually take their medicine that way if they need a blend? That's perfectly legal. And arguably, CBD, hemp-derived CBD oil is no different from coconut oil It's as far as it being legal or not. And like I said, there's a little gray area. The DEA's position is still that CBD oil is illegal, although they never do anything about it. They, they allow the industry to continue to operate. But yeah, I mean, medical marijuana dispensaries right now can grow hemp. So they could choose to derive CBD oil from hemp. And if they did that, uh, and if they want to then break up leaves and decarboxylate it uh, into the oil, there might be someone who want to argue that somehow they don't think that's legal, but it, it, it wouldn't be illegal under this decision. And I think it would be considered to be legal based on that Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decision that I referenced. Well, and also that the you know, Agricultural Improvement Act actually legalized hemp. We're a year away, though, from seeing people being able to apply for a hemp production license. I'm talking about right now today. I think that's the big takeaway. Is there anything people can do? Because I know a lot of people are very upset about this. Get on your legislators. They could fix this by just writing a statute. So um, check out Safer Arizona for information. They're going to be holding a signature drive in demonstrations. I have a feeling they're going to become much bigger than maybe we'd first thought with so many people wanting to express their frustration with this decision. Other than that, this is all developing right now. I mean, the consumer-focused marijuana policy reform organizations here in the Valley, Normal, Safer Arizona, Phoenix Cannabis Coalition, Marijuana Industry Trade Association, I think, is also wanting to you know, assist in those efforts. You know, just stay involved in those organizations that I mentioned um, and, and stay aware out there and be careful. Make good choices. 
so that you don't end up getting inadvertently caught up in, in one of these possession of narcotic drugs cases. And people can call me if something's happened and they have gotten in trouble. I'm more than happy to sit down and talk to them and figure out what to do. That's fantastic to hear. And I will definitely be putting your contact information up. And anybody who wants to check out these organizations, I'll also put all of the nonprofits and advocacy groups on this episode post. And I have to say thank you again so much for taking so much time with this. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I really, uh, it's hard to talk about this issue in, in sound bites. It, and so I appreciate very much you giving the time. Once again, I would like to personally thank my guest, attorney Thomas Dean for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. And like I said, if you'd like to learn more about this issue and get involved in some of the rallies that are happening, if you live in the state of Arizona, well, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's show. And there I will post information and links to his website We have so many people to thank. First, I would like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Alpine Miracle Health Terra and Canisphere. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank our program directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling.